Let you know, I don't think there was anyone in this congregation more disappointed when they found out Andy wasn't going to be here than I was. Um, now, ladies, you're going to disagree with what I'm about to tell you, but Lloyd-Jones once said, the closest a man will ever come to experiencing childbirth is standing in the pulpit and preaching God's word. Um, y'all may disagree with that slightly. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, it is always a privilege to stand here before you and present his word. So, Today we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. And we're going to be at the end of chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. It will be a very familiar passage. So let's read that passage. Mark 4, starting in verse 35, and we'll read through verse 41. And the word of the Lord reads... On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them into the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word, may you speak to us through it. And Father, Lord, as, as I speak, may you use me as a conduit to proclaim your truth. Anything, anything that I say that may, not be false, that may be false or may not be true, may you strike it from the ears of those that are listening today. And Father, Lord, may only your word and your truth be proclaimed. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. As it is in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Several years ago, when I was uh, serving in the Air National Guard, uh, my unit was preparing for a, a, we had a big exercise, a big inspection coming up. Now, this, this inspection was taking on a whole new meaning that more than it normally did. Two years prior, two years earlier, we had completely, we had failed miserably. Uh, those of you that can remember, Tropical Storm Allison hit during the same time. We got flooded, which probably saved us in the end. But we were coming to be reinspected. This was a couple of years later. And uh, what was really what was really becoming important was that Ellington, the Air National Guard wing down at Ellington, had made the BRAC list. If you don't know what the BRAC list is, if your base ends up on the BRAC list, that means the Pentagon's about to shut you down. We were on the BRAC list. We were, we were be, they were preparing to shut us down. So it was very imperative that we do well on this inspection. And in the months leading up to it, 
the base commander was going to have us to begin preparing. And they were getting ready to present their plan of how we were going to prepare and what we were going to do. Now, now, one thing about the guard and the reserves, about 90% of the staffing is part-time. A weekend a month, two weeks a year. That's all that's mandatory without a presidential activation. So one, one weekend, they, start, they pack us into an auditorium about half this size, probably about 400 people. That's the way the military likes to do it. They pack you in like cattle. That's just how we roll. Days before social distancing, of course. And uh, I remember as I'm sitting in there, it, you know, I'm just thinking, whatever the schedule is, it's going to have a profound impact on me, on my life, on my job, on my family. And if we do terrible on this inspection, this is going to have an even bigger impact. Do I stay in the guard part-time? Am I going to have to transfer to another state? Am I going to have to move to... Nobody wants to go to Dallas, right? I don't want to have to go with there. But so there was all these decisions that were going to have to be made. And uh, the, the commander, he gets up there, and he's all proud, and he puts a calendar up on the big screen, and he says, we have maximized the amount of days that you're going to have to serve you're not going to go over your, your normal days that are required, but we've maximized it in order to, to get us the best amount of time to prepare. Well, what this commander had done, and he was very proud of himself, he had taken the full-time staff's work schedule. Four days a week, weekends off. They worked Tuesday through Friday, was Saturday, Sunday, Monday off, and they matched their schedule. When I put my schedule, I worked, I worked shift work. I was off Tuesdays and Wednesdays and work nights. And, it, and as I, I was sitting there, I'm like, what did he just say? I'm asking the guy, that, what, what did he just say? He's saying I'm not going to have to do more than two weeks or a week in a month. But when I looked at it, I was going to have to double the amount of time. This was going to cost my family. I wasn't going to be around my family. My life is going to be greatly altered because we, we were working basically 24-hour shifts. My job, I was going to have to sacrifice and go unpaid for a double the amount of time normal. And this just had a profound impact on my life. Now, I was sitting in there, and before he even said anything, I'm like, I really have to listen. And, and, and the reason I, I, I tell you this story is I wonder, do we approach, approach God's word in the same way? is that when we read it, it's going to have a profound impact on our life, on our family, on our jobs, on our church. Do we read it in that way? And, and do we read it with the attention in that regard that we know it's going to affect everything about us? And if we say we are people of the book, shouldn't our lives reflect that? Shouldn't our families reflect that? Should our church reflect that? <clears throat> So as we approach this passage today, this is a very familiar passage. We've all heard it. But I want to ask you two things. We approach the text. Let's look at it with two essential things. Is what does this passage reveal about God? And how does this affect my life in light of what he's revealed of himself? So as we pick up in this, this passage here, it's very familiar. Most of us have, we've heard it in Sunday school lessons. We've heard sermons on it. I wouldn't even, I don't even know where to begin to count the number of songs that have been written with this passage in mind. And it's easy for us to read ourselves into it. And there's nothing wrong with kind of reading ourselves into it. Um, I mean, we got a banner up here, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my refuge. So in a storm, I mean, obviously, that's truth. But 
Let's be careful reading ourselves into it. And let's look at this passage in light of what it says. To, to, steal, a, to steal a word from uh, Brother Dwayne, I want to challenge you to go deeper. And let's look at other marvelous truths that can be mined from this vein of gold. So as we read this, let's, let's go deeper. Let's dig deeper. So in verse 35, you know, as this picks up, it's evening time. And um, there's a couple of things about this. If we go back into chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching all day. And it says a multitude, a big crowd surrounds him. So he's on the shore, so they put him in a boat and kind of back off. So that, you know, it would be like if I'm standing right here, you know, it's a bad position. But here, everybody can kind of see me. So they do that. He gets in the boat, gives him a better vantage point. People can hear him better. People can see him. But he's been teaching all day. <clears throat> and once he's done teaching, he tells the disciples, let's, you know, the boat's in the water. Let's go across to the other side. So they set out across the sea. It was a nice evening. You know, the, as nighttime approached, I'm sure it was a lovely little sunset cruise on the Sea of Galilee, right? But as we get into verse 37, the, the scene changes. This lovely little sunset cruise is getting a little out of control. And the text tells us a windstorm arose. Now, I grew up in Livingston. And for the better part of my life, I lived on Lake Livingston. Uh, at, at one point, we even had a house on the water. Now, if you don't know Lake Livingston very well, we lived on the south end. The south end of Lake Livingston is wide open. It's big. And um, it's, it can be beautiful. Uh, there are many a times that Angela and I would just take the boat out and just go cruise. Just a nice little cruise in the evening time. It's been a hot summer day. Just kind of a nice, cool ride as the sun is setting. But there's another side to this lake. You see, Lake Livingston runs kind of north and south. And here in the summertime, our prevailing winds are south, southeast. And a lot of times in the summer, as it heats, the winds just come out of nowhere. I mean, they just kind of explode on you from the, from the heat as the late in the evening time. <clears throat> and on more than one occasion, we've been caught on the water when this happens. And it's not fun at all. Um, it is not uncommon to have five and six foot waves on that end of the lake. And... Um, when you're in this nice pontoon boat that's comfortable for cruising on nice smooth water, you find out real quick a pontoon boat is not made for water like that. And if you've ever been on one, something I discovered, a pontoon boat will dive like a crankbait when its nose goes under a wave. That is from experience, trust me. So it, it, it turns into this, it, it is no fun at all. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's scary. It truly is. I mean, we've had kids out there in this, when this happens, and you just don't know what to do. I mean, it, it is very frightening. But the Sea of Galilee, it's a little different, a little different. Um, the Sea of Galilee is 690 feet below sea level. And it's not that far from the Mediterranean Sea. So it's 690 feet below sea level. But on one end of it, Mount Hermon rises 9,200 feet. So what you have is winds coming off the sea, dropping in a hole, going up a mountain. <clears throat> and from May to October, strong winds often sweep through the narrow gorges and the, and the, and the canyons, and it causes a, um, a violent storm, sudden and violent storms. And the Greek word that's used here for storm is actually whirlwind. And to kind of put it in terms that we, could, we can relate to, 
is that uh, the way that they're speaking of this here, this storm took on the properties of a hurricane. Just a whirlwind, spinning and whirling. And we got to remember, see, when I was out on a lake in rough water, I'm not the most experienced mariner out there. I, I've, I've run a boat for a better part of my life, but I'm not out there all the time. These disciples that are with him, these are fishermen. They have grew up on this, this sea. They know this water. They've been on this water all the time, fishing day and night. And you see the chosen, it's an interesting part about them fishing at night because they're not supposed to. But side note, you should watch the chosen if you haven't seen it. But um, these men were out here. These were professionals. And they thought this storm, the storm would drown them all. But what about Jesus? What does the text say about Jesus? What does it say? He was in the stern asleep on a cushion. That's a whole sermon in itself. Jesus sleeping back there on that cushion. I just want you to ponder that. Maybe spend some time studying up on that. I'm not really going to hound on that one too much today, but he's asleep. But there is something I want you to recognize here. is that you have these seasoned fishermen. They spent most of their lives on the water. And they are beside themselves. They are frightened. They are terrified. And where is Jesus? That carpenter is asleep in the back of the boat. There's a violent storm and Jesus is sleeping. There's a couple things to notice. In his sleeping, it reveals his complete humanity. He'd been teaching all day. Um, those of you that have had the privilege of standing in a pulpit, how do you feel that afternoon? You want a nap. You just want a nap. Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. His human flesh was tired. When he took on human flesh, he experienced everything that we do and still did not sin. And here we just get a little glimpse of his human nature. He needed rest. He needed sleep. And the second thing is this. <clears throat> I have heard it taught that the disciples run to Jesus because they knew he could rescue them. And in this account, now, in the accounts of Matthew and Luke, we can kind of see that. But this account, we don't read this. I'm not saying, I mean, it's, it's not true, like I pointed out. It means our strength and refuge, we should run to him. But this account doesn't read that way, does it? It reads a little different. It reads as almost like, teacher. Do you not care that we are perishing? It's like, do you not even care what's happening to us? It's how they approach him. <clears throat> I mean, if I were to think about myself, I know how I would react in this situation. Or maybe that's just me. I know I'd be like, why are you sleeping? Don't you understand what's happening? Don't you see? Why don't you get up and do something? Right? Do something. I don't care what you do. Throw something out of the boat. I, do something. Maybe we should throw you out of the boat. That's what they did to Jonah and everything stopped. So let's get something out of the boat. But why are you just sleeping? I know that's how I'd respond. And I know it's exactly how I'd respond because when I was in Kandahar uh, several years ago, we had a, a ground attack. Now, it wasn't a big deal because we had special forces all the way around us. But where we were, we had to post security. We post security around our little, our little compound. And uh, I had done my, my, my little uh, time in security. I was coming back. I, I got in a bunker, and I'm sitting there, 
and there's a kid sitting across from me. I say kid, I was 35 at the time. There's a kid that's probably three years older than my boys. He's probably 18. <clears throat> We're in a ground attack. It's been going on about an hour. You hear sporadic gunfire in the background. This kid is taking, and I know the Air Force jokes are coming, but he has taken his magazine out of his rifle, and he's emptying the rounds, and he's cleaning them because his bullets got dusty. I'm like, boy, what are you doing? Give me that. Put that back. You, what if you need this? See, I know that's how I would react. I would look at Jesus and be like, what are you doing? Wake up. I know what's going on here. And I, I would, that's exactly how I would re- react. I would not react out of one who is uh, just humbly surrendered. I would act out of one with anger and frustration that he's not doing anything. <clears throat> but let's look at what, because they see it as, I would see it, and I'm pretty sure they're seeing it. It's a lack of concern. It's like he doesn't care what's happening to us right now. When, the storm, when storms for this situation arise, how do we respond? Do we respond by what it is we can do? Or do we respond in humble submission? Because what we're about to read should affect everything about our lives. In verse 39, it says, He awoke, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Now, earlier we saw the humanity of Jesus because he slept. He was tired. But what's revealed to him next is his divine nature. This is what we can't miss in this passage. What does he do? Does he panic? No. Look at the text. What does it say? It says he, he wakes up. He rebukes the wind. Think about wind for a minute. We can't see it. We can see how it affects things, but we can't see it. We can feel it, but we can't touch it. I mean, maybe some of you are smarter than me. We don't even really know where the wind comes from. It's just there. We know it's there. The wind is a destructive force. And most of us know this very well around here. We get plenty of storms, tornadoes and hurricanes. And even with technology today and the wisdom of man, we can't control the wind. But Jesus rebukes the wind. He rebukes it without a word. It just says he rebukes it. Because then it says he spoke to the water. <clears throat> and he says, peace be still. Peace be still. Look at the text. What did he just say? He just said, peace, be still. Jesus speaks and it all ceases. Just think about that. He spoke and the water was calm. There wasn't this gradual slowing down. It's just calm. Last week when Melvin was here, he said something. Uh, He said something to God that uh, when we, he referred to him as the one that breathed out the stars. He spoke out all creation. And now we read the words of Jesus immediately stop. Something we have no control over stops. Jesus has a human nature, but at this moment his divine nature is on full display. Only the creator of such power, only a creator has such power as this, that at his command 
all stops. Christ's authority over creation has now been revealed. <clears throat> the literal translation here for, for peace be still is to be silent. You know, storms normally subside gradually. You know, as a hurricane passes through, you know, the winds gradually come up and they gradually come down. This, but, but when the creator gave the order, the natural elements of this storm ceased immediately. Stopped. After rebuking the wind, Jesus turns to his disciples and he rebukes them. Why are you afraid? What, you still have no faith? Haven't you been listening? Haven't you been watching? Haven't you been following me? Have I been revealing myself to you? That's what I've been doing, but still, you don't believe. But before we're too harsh on the disciples, we've got to ask ourselves, do we still have no faith? We have the word of God. We have his final word. The disciples were living it day by day. Things were being revealed to them one at a time. We can read it all. We can see it all. We have the advantage of knowing the outcome, that they did not. So are we better? Are we in or better when storms arise? Do we look into him? Or are we too busy trying to battle the storms ourselves? Something to ponder as we look into this passage. I wonder if we've ever reached the point that the disciples do in this account. Do we ask ourselves a question? The same question they do. Who is this? Who is this? It says they were filled with fear. This fear is not a fear of being harmed by the storm anymore. The storm they could care less about. The fear now is of what's in the boat with them. Because this man, this, this Jesus, just the most fearful thing they had at that moment, he just silenced it. Now their fear is of that man sitting in that boat. <clears throat> the fear was not a fear of being harmed anymore, but it was a reverence of the supernatural power Jesus just displayed. It was an awe, a reverence, like what did we just see? The only thing more terrifying than that storm was him. The only thing to be more feared than that storm was him. Are we filled with an awe of wonder of God, of who he is? Who is this Christ? And who is it that we've sinned against? Have we come to that realization? Notice that the wind and the sea obey him at his command. Nature obeys its creator without fail. Was the storm an act of disobedience? No. Nature must obey its creator. I want you to think about this, this account from 2 Samuel, Uzzah, where they're bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, and it's on a cart. You know the, the story? They're bringing it in on a cart, which that's the wrong way to carry it, if they'd read, their, if they'd read the book. Well, this cart gets a little unstable. What's Uzzah do? puts his hands up to catch it. What happens? He is struck dead immediately. And you may look at that and be like, how could God do something like that? He's just trying to protect it from this dirt. Let's think about something. Who in this story is unclean? Who has sinned against God? The dirt? No. The dirt does exactly what God created it to do. Gets wet, what does it do? 
turns to mud. Dries out, it turns to dust. Now, the unclean one here is Uzzah that reaches up to touch the ark. So the one that could defile God's holiness wasn't the dirt on the ground. It was the man. The dirt is obedient, and we are not. When I hear this, it, it struck me, wow, nature around us is always obedient, and we are the scourge of creation because we sin against our creator. So who is it that is sitting in that boat? Who is it? What would have come to mind to these, these Jewish men? They, the Jewish men were brought up in the study of the scriptures. And there are several scriptures that just, that when Christ calmed this storm, that revealed who he is. Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over the water. The glory of, the, the, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. His voice is powerful and over all the waters. There's power in his voice. Psalm 65, verses 5 and 7. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. <clears throat> the one by his strength establishes the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas and the roaring of their waves, the tumult, the tumult of the peoples. It is the God of this creation that calms the storm. And once again, Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the raging seas. When its waves rise, you still them. So the question to their answer, their, their, the answer to their question is here. It's in the scripture. Who is it that just calmed the storm? It's the creator of the storm. It's God. <clears throat> the man that was just sleeping, physically exhausted, the man Jesus is fully God, lording over all his creation. The disciples had failed to see it during the storm, the storm that raged around them, that the Lord of the storm was in the boat. No matter the outcome of the situation, the Lord was with them. Do you realize this? Believers, do, do we realize that the Lord of the storm is with us in every situation? I don't know if you notice there is a storm brewing around us. If you watch the news, our country seems to be in turmoil. There is a big election coming up in a couple of days. And I would say most of us in here have probably already voted. <clears throat> and there's many worried about the outcome of this. But don't fret. No matter the outcome, God knows it. And he has commanded the results. He will be glorified. We may not see it. We may not understand it. But God is sovereign and ruling on his throne. That is the truth we must rest in. Look at the SBC. It's forgotten its first priority. 
that is Christ, in him crucified, to preach Christ in him crucified. They have fallen into the trap of teaching the wisdom of man. Colossians 2.8. Take a look and look at what the SBC's perpetuating. There is chaos all around us. My question to you, church, is how do we respond? Do we respond with what the world says is the right way to respond? Or do we ask ourselves, what does the text say? What does God's word say? This passage is revealing that Jesus is Lord, God incarnate. All his creation around us obey him. But what about us? Is this the truth? Is the truth of who Jesus is so real that no matter what storms are brewing around us, that we will stand on his word? Is that truth, is it that much of a reality that we can go against nothing that he has commanded? Do we understand who he is that much? Do we order our families, our lives, and our church around what the Lord has commanded? Or do we order them around traditions or what the world says to When God's word is clear, we must walk in obedience, leaning on his wisdom. God's word should have a radical impact on everything we do. It changes how we act, it changes how we live, and what we prioritize. But in this case, does the structure of our lives demonstrate this? Do we live knowing that we are representing God in everything? Fathers, are we striving to be the spiritual leaders of our families? church, are we looking to honor God in everything that we do or do we rely on traditions and what the world thinks? We are not perfect and we are going to fail in many ways. But when we know something is clear, when God reveals truth to us, do we stand on that above what everything else says we should do, above what the world says, above what man thinks? Do we stand firm on God's word? Yesterday marked the 503rd anniversary of an Augustinian monk nailing his 95 thesis to the the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. It's not quite as bold as you would think. I mean, it was pretty common practice to nail something to to the door of the church if you wanted a topic of conversation. So, I mean, it just sounds cool that he nailed it up there, but it was kind of like posting something on a, in a chat room or something, but but it was 95 things that Martin Luther had noticed where the church was contradicting the Holy Scriptures. Luther never intended to start a storm, to start the storm that was to come. But he did something that should challenge us all. He simply desired that the church honor God through obedience to the word. He was just saying, hey, hey, this is what we're practicing. This is what God's word says. Let's, let's talk this out. Let's, let's get together. Let's figure out what's going on. We, the reformers never desired to have a different church, to split off into to the Protestant denominations that we have today. Their desire was to reform the church in itself. But the Lord had other plans. So he, put, he puts this up there, he, and, and, and uh, Luther was very vocal of what he saw was wrong. 
And we don't have time today, but I would love to read to you all 95 things, 95 points that he pointed to. Very detailed. The man was convicted by the word of God. And in April of 1521, Luther was brought before a a diet, a council, in the city of Worms. The Diet of Worms, as we would read it, but it's the council in the city of Worms, the Diet of Worms. Luther, Luther was being charged with blasphemy to the church and the Holy Pope. He is brought before the council, which consisted of civil authorities. Since Luther had already been excommunicated from the church, he was already excommunicated, he was kicked out. Um, the civil authorities were trying him. The church had already said, you're excommunicated, you die. It's time for you to die. The civil authorities were protecting him. They were giving him an option. You can come before us, you know, here's another chance. You can recant. You can step back from what you're saying and and you will be spared. So here he is. There's a storm in front of him, right? The church is saying you're wrong. The government's saying you're wrong. But the word of God is saying something different. And what does this meager little monk do? What does he do? He stood. He stood with the one that calmed the storm in this passage. The one that was creating this storm. He stood with him. Martin Luther knew that he knew the Jesus we read about that was in that boat. He knew him. And he feared him over anything, any man, or anything that the world could do to him. And he stood there. He stood there just as a hundred years before him, John Huss stood there being tried for the exact same things Luther was being tried for. And John Huss is Czechoslovakian. The last name Huss means goose. And he tells them as they're trying him, John Huss was burned at the stake. Luther standing before council just like John Huss. John Huss said, you may cook this goose. But a hundred years from now, there will be a swan come that you will neither boil nor roast. That was in 1415. Luther nailed his 95 thesis in 1517, 102 years later. Here he stands. Luther knows this. As he stood facing almost certain death, Martin Luther replied to the order to recant and to back down from every charge brought against him by the church with these words. This is his response. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. May God help me. Amen. This was his response to facing certain death. That unless he's convinced by the scriptures, he cannot recant. He cannot disobey God. Do we know the God of the Bible in the way that we could stand against government, against society, against the church, and stand with God? Do we search the scriptures with the urgency that we must order our lives and our family and our church after what God says? Do we read and listen and ask ourselves, what did he say? What did he say? 
Because this word is going to change everything. Nature responds to his call. What about us? Do we respond? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, being rich in mercy, he had sent his son, lived a perfect, sinless life that paid the atonement, paid the price that was due each and every one of us. <clears throat> that we may be saved, that we may be saved from the coming wrath of God. By faith. Faith that's a gift from him. To believe who this is. To believe who this word says he is. That's the gift. This is the one we stand in awe and reverence of. If you know Jesus, praise be to God. Go deeper. Know him more. You've got a lifetime of learning. You can keep learning and keep digging and keep going. You'll never find the end of him. So when the storms come, when they come, and they will, there may be a big one coming Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll cling to him. <clears throat> If you don't know Jesus, I implore you, I beg you, call out to him. Call out to him. Today can be the day of your salvation. Call out to him and ask him to open your eyes to allow you to believe in him and know a peace that surpasses all wisdom and understanding. Martin Luther stood there knowing that it was by the scriptures alone that he would be convinced. And it was by Christ alone that he was saved. Through faith alone that he was given the ability to believe. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, as we approach your word and the truths that are in it, Father God, may you give us the strength and the conviction to stand firm on what you have commanded us, to what you have given us. Father, Lord, may we order everything about our lives that we would be obedient to you. Father God, I pray myself that I would be as obedient as the dirt. Just make me obedient as the dirt. Because I know it is you, it is you that can help us to walk in obedience to you. Father, Lord, give me a reverence. Give all of us a reverence and an awe and a fear of you that's greater than anything that the world can, can tempt to scare us with. Father, may we know this Jesus that sits in that boat. That not only does he calm the storms, he is the creator of them all. Father, Lord, may that be our testimony this week. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.